Welcome to another episode of the Odd Fellows Oddcast, and today we're going to be talking with a couple of historians about where it is that Odd Fellows came from. And I want to give both you, Penelope and Simon, an opportunity to introduce yourself because I'm sure that you could probably say it a lot better than I could in terms of your accomplishments and in terms of your publishing and all of the great things that you've done uh, with your respective uh, history uh, departments that you're with, with uh, different universities, colleges. So uh, please go ahead. Hi, I'm, I don't know if I'm on top or on bottom, but I'll go first. I'm Penny Ismay. Um, I teach at Boston College. Um, I think of myself as a social historian of the economy. Um, and that's how I got interested in friendly societies. My first and only book is called uh, Trust Among Strangers. Friendly Societies in Modern Britain. Okay, awesome. And Simon? Hello, I'm Simon Cordry. I'm chair of the history department at Iowa State University, where I am a professor of history. And I'm here because my first book was a history of friendly societies in Britain from 1750 or so to 1914 or something like that. Right. <laughs> well, very good. Uh, thank you for the introductions. And uh, I, I want to uh, I'm going to work in a few PowerPoint slides as we discuss things, and so we'll just take our cues from those as we go. Uh, so uh, first off, what is a friendly society? I know that that was something that you, you both have written about extensively, so you're definitely experts in the matter, but uh, I, as I have read, there are different ways of describing something that would be considered a friendly society. So for example, odd fellows would be considered friendly society by its original definition. So uh, how would you, would you both define friendly society the same way, do you think? Well, we're historians. So I imagine that we would probably think uh, in historical terms. And so let me begin by quoting the first legal definition of a friendly society from the 1793 Act for the Encouragement and relief of friendly societies. And it says, and I quote, a society of good fellowship for the purpose of raising from time to time by voluntary contributions, a stock of fund for the mutual relief and maintenance of all and every member thereof in old age, sickness and infirmity, or for the relief of widows and children of deceased members. I mean, that's the official government definition from 1793. Okay, Penny, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> so I was very interested in this question, especially since that's the starting point for most historians, because that is the legal definition. But that was the first time the law recognized friendly society. So I was interested, and it was really just one of these, oh, I should find out if there's any like earlier meaning of this term friendly society. So I started going back and then it took me further and further. I ended up in the, really the earliest one was in the 15th century, um, but, but really the term friendly society comes into, I think, um, more popular use in the 16th and especially the, the 17th century. And, and the way it was used was um, before it became associated with these working men's uh, benefit clubs, it was, um, it could be an informal or formal way of obligating yourself amongst a group of stipulated people. So friendly was um, not just we hang out and we like each other's company, it entailed obligations. So to designate people members of a friendly society, even if it wasn't 
an actual club, just an informal um, way of talking about yourselves, entailed duties and obligations between the members. Now, uh, would that sort of definition also extend to the guilds, which preceded friendly societies? Yes, absolutely. And I think, I think a lot of, you know, there's there, the institutional relationships between guilds and friendly societies are very clear. They're very similar organizations. In fact, they borrow each other's rules, um, uh, the, the kinds of structures, the hierarchies that are created in terms of officers, um, the kinds of benefits one could expect. It's just what kept the people together in that group was different. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the part I was interested in was the ethical, um, the ethical aspects of friendly societies. And I think if I were to describe the difference between um, Simon's work and mine is his focus was on the institutional relationships between earlier forms of reciprocity and, and, and um, subsequent ones in the 19th century. And, and I was interested in more on the ethical side of that um, question. Now, uh, just a, a footnote to that. Whenever you say ethical, do you also mean like moral? And the reason why I ask that is because there are a number of times when friendly societies sort of encroached on uh, the church in England. And so there was a lot of, you know, sort of friction between the two of them. So do you, do you also mean that aspect of it as well? For me, it, it's really a, um, it was, it was, the ethics of it would depend on how the group answered the question, um, who owes what to whom and why? And so you could have religious answers to that. You could have shared trade reasons for that. You could have all sorts of reasons for that, but that's the sort of organizing question and produces a set of ethics between the members. Okay, all right. And the good. ethics speak to reciprocity is, is, is I guess, the way I would describe it. Yeah, and like we use, you know, the term obligation in the Odd Fellows. So I, I can I can understand what you mean by that. Um, so uh, the next slide. So Odd Fellows uh, today, as well as other fraternities and social clubs, got their start during the rise of friendly societies and box clubs in England in the late 1700s, as we already uh, covered. Uh, so what was it do you think that led to their enormous growth? Because we ended up with, you know, a golden age of fraternity where there were a great number of people by percentage that were members of some form of friendly society or another. And uh, uh, the question kind of also goes back to whether or not the Odd Fellows were in some way, like because of the guilds, a odd tradesmen group is it like is there any truth to that and also uh, I felt in in my reading of your your books and all the other research that I've done that uh, Defoe's essay on projects was also a really big influence to kind of spur neighborhoods and communities to be self-reliant. Simon? Well, I'll start off by suggesting that in the 18th century, it was the influence of local magistrates, justices of the peace and Church of England vicars that was perhaps more important than anything Defoe wrote. I mean, the essay on projects was of course interesting, but he was responding to the idea that the poor rates were much too high and we needed to save money by 
convincing people to support themselves in times of sickness and um, in, 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 for their burials. I think more pertinently were societies that local worthies saw as important ways to do the same thing, to save on the rates, but also to help create the, the so-called missing ethos of self-reliance, to get people to see that they should be responsible for their own welfare and not rely on the parish as they supposedly had been taught to do. Now, of course, what's happening at the time is this massive social, political, and primarily economic transformation as Britain is lurching towards the Industrial Revolution. And admittedly, the Industrial Revolution was partial, it was incomplete, and it was always never a total revolution or change in the way everyone lived and thought, but it did make it very difficult for people to rely on the old moral economy in which custom said, if you're starving, then we have a right, a duty to protect you. And in the 18th century, that's pretty clearly going away. And so these locals are local uh, worthies the, the, the justices of the peace and the local vicars are thinking of friendly societies as a way to help people help themselves. Mm. Okay. Uh, Penelope, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think that's a great explanation. And the only, the only thing I would add to that, I mean, it, it's not different. It's just that the, the set of questions I asked were precisely about this, this transition that, that Simon's talking about when you really are going from parish communities where people know everyone, right? They know who the parish members are to a, a, a geographic and structural change in the economy that's so profound, people are moving all the time. And so the, the poor law system had been a locally based system of poor relief. When you have all that movement, the question of, um, how do you know if a person is, really belongs to this parish, which is what the law obligated a parish officer to do? Each parish had to take care of its own, but how do you know who's your own? And when the rates are just skyrocketing, then the question of self-reliance comes in. Did something happen to our poor to demoralize them? So it's these two questions of this, this geographic mobility that's starting to lead to mass migration and the, the old poor relief system that was no longer adequate to, to scale to that kind of, and be flexible enough for that kind of movement. Now, whenever you talk about poor relief, is that something that led directly into the poor laws, which you know, would uh, criminalize being poor and have you locked up in you know, a, a, a poor house? Is that, is that sort of what happened after that point was reached, when well, the poor could no longer be supported by a community or by the, the mechanisms in place? I mean, the system that Penny is talking about is formalized in the 1601 poor law, kind of the last act of the Elizabethan age. Hmm. And it didn't criminalize poverty, that comes later. I suppose if you want to see it in those terms, the 1834 new poor law makes it very difficult to be <laughs> to be poor and to get any kind of relief. I think that's the turning point. Hmm. Okay, good. Yeah. Because at a certain point, uh, membership in a friendly society became uh, more attractive 
ideal because you could uh, potentially avoid uh, what would be, you know, a disastrous situation where it would be bad enough that you would be poor, not uh, poor enough that you couldn't feed yourself and your family properly, but that you would also lose your liberty. Yeah, that's the 1834 poor law with the idea of less eligibility in the workhouse. And so if you were, if you were unable to work or the local authorities considered that you were in some way demoralized to use, to use Penny's word, then yes, then you were thrown into the workhouse, which was seen as uh, destroying the respectability of your family. There's a reason that the workhouses were called the Bastilles by those who criticized them. And although the system wasn't quite as widespread as uh, we historians originally thought it might be, nonetheless, it was a deterrent and it was also an incentive to find other means of support, including friendly societies. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you feel that um, this then had a lot to do with how it is that the, the church and uh, the, the crown uh, kind of came in with these laws that, like the Unlawful Oaths Act of, of 1797, where they were sort of trying to prevent people from being too independent? Or do you think that there was something else that was motivating uh, those laws, like also the Unlawful Societies Act of 1799. Uh, how, did, how did those things you know, fit in with, with that? These laws, like why were they, uh, what motivated these laws? And you know, did it make it more dangerous or a dicier proposition to belong to a friendly society because of them? Uh, I don't know if you wanna take that, Simon. I, I... I think it's a it, that's the question that really gets at the origin of the Odd Fellows, um, and and for me, I mean that period is obviously an extremely tense period during the Revolutionary Wars, the rise of political radicalism this, in this period left the British government feeling extremely vulnerable, and the Corresponding Societies Act were actually corresponding with societies in. Um, in France uh, and talking about revolutionary foment. So I think that, that, that the law was directed at these political societies. The odd fellows in this period um, and the, the records that we have, they, they, odd fellows originated somewhere in the 18th century. We don't know in terms of documentary evidence, we don't know exactly when, but we have some evidence in the 1780s that shows that they weren't political. They were a convivial society. They liked to, to get together, dress up and drink together. They recited poems. They had a lot of fun. It was considered one of the very, um, one of the sort of on the edge of being um, uh, convivial slash frivolous slash maybe um, silly, mm -hmm. um, but lots of fun. And people who had expendable income in London joined these in droves. And so, they, they only, they, the, the Corresponding Societies Act did not, it, the Odd Fellows with relationships to each other, the clubs that had relationships to each other were technically illegal, but the government wasn't interested in them particularly because mm -hmm. they just, they weren't political. Mm -hmm. it's, it's only when they start to get government attention in the, the early part of the 19th century when 
they be they the the rise, especially in the 1820s and 30s, is really significant. And the government's trying to use them to solve their welfare problem. Hmm. And then suddenly they're they're they have this problem where the the odd fellows are technically illegal because they're corresponding between each other. They have multiple branches. And they are, can't register under the friendly society legislation that was then in existence. You know, it brings up a really interesting question that I had not considered before. But one of the the tenant rules that we have at Odd Fellows is we do not discuss politics and we do not discuss religion in the lodge. And uh, it kind of makes me wonder whether or not that was to avoid. Um, the interest of greater powers that might break up their organization. Is that a fair observation or? I think so. I think it's, there's, there are two functions at least that I noticed in, in my research. One is precisely that they started getting negative attention in, in the, the 1790s in the press hmm. and became very interested in changing their oaths to promises. So they hmm. wouldn't be, be um, attracting any attention in that way. Um, and also really taking politics out of the, the, the lodge setting. But, but that rule is really common to all sort of convivial clubs in this period. And that's, it's, you know, talking politics and religion is just a bad idea when you're trying to have fun. Um, and so, it, you know, I think it's, it, it was both of those things. Um, one, a contingent historical thing and the other, just how do we get along? Right. And uh, that's kind of the explanation that's given for that too, is so that we can basically get along as a group because, you know, we all know how divisive both of those topics can be. Uh, so, yeah. Um, now, uh, next, uh, next slide, next question. Uh, what do you think is the primary reason if, and, and I, I don't mean to kind of lump sum the history of friendly societies or odd fellows in particular, but what do you think was the main draw that people had? Was it security? Was it the conviviality? And, you know, I, in doing some of the research, we have some really great names for friendly societies, and I don't happen to have any handy, but, uh, you know, if you could, like, maybe there's one in particular you can think of off the top of your head that's a really great one, but um, also, too, uh, in what way did public houses, you know, pubs, uh, play in the conviviality part, you know, were, do you think that the, the, the pubs kind of welcomed that sort of uh, club, or do you think that they supported that kind of club, or do you think that they were, it was kind of a mutual uh, symbiotic kind of thing? Well, you mentioned box clubs earlier, and box clubs tended to be run by publicans, and they were used as a way to attract and maintain business, and the same is certainly true of friendly societies. I do think that the names are telling and the names are important and the names give us a sense of the sheer range and diversity of what friendly societies were up to. I mean, there's in Wales, there is, there's a Welsh speaking friendly society called the True Ivorites. And they, that was in, in the 19th century, a Welsh speaking friendly society. I mean, some of them simply expressing the names like the Brotherly Knot Society explains that they're all about fellowship. They're all about trying to create unity where perhaps there isn't any. The United Philanthropists Friendly Society of London 
which was a little bit of a cover for political activity, but also they did have friendly society functions. And I think the answer to your original question is yes, both the conviviality and the, the um, insurance benefits were important. Mm -hmm. um, I have a great name here. I just, uh, friends around the cauliflower um, <laughs> and, and the club of ugly faces. There was a mendicant club uh -huh. um, these were the these are all 18th century London clubs, but but still, it just gives you a sense of these, you know, the sort of purpose of these clubs. And I think I, I found similar to what Simon just said, um, when a when a publican sold his pub, um, I, I found records where they they advertised the regalia of the Oddfellow Club that mm -hmm. the pub owned um, as a point of sale so that it was as part of the particulars of sale that that was something that should attract a new owner because this they could continue with that yeah exactly and they had you know a set that that was always going to be a good group who would buy a certain amount of alcohol every time they met yeah yeah the odd fellows actually got around to saying no alcohol during lodge sessions so that, that was something that uh, among the many changes over the years, uh, yeah, so. Um, only in the United States. Yeah, only, yeah, it's just like well, in the Navy. <laughs> right. I, I was gonna mention that uh, the lodge that I you know, joined is in this little town called Lompoc, California. And the guy who started it was an odd fellow from up in Northern California who happened to be a a newspaper man, and uh, he was also a, a lawyer. And so he found this area, uh, which was largely undeveloped. And because there was a stagecoach that, that went through, there was this valley, it's called the Valley of the Flowers, uh, really great area for growing uh, a lot of different crops. And so when he found it, he was like, this is the place where I can start a society that is free of alcohol. And he, he was successful for a period of time. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the people who traveled through uh, would always ask for alcohol and a lot of the storekeepers would kind of keep a little stash in back. And uh, when it was discovered that these uh, storekeepers were selling alcohol on the side without the knowledge of the uh, founder of the town, uh, who, by the way, had started up a newspaper here and also became the Justice of the Peace, uh, the storekeepers found themselves with dynamite sticks being thrown into their stores and getting blown up. That would <laughs> never happen in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's, that's one of the key differences between Odd Fellowship in the US and the UK. I mean, as, as early as what, 1835, American Odd Fellows declared that their society was a temperance society, whereas in Britain, you have temperance societies. If you want to go to a society that meets in the local national school, you join the Reykjavites or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, Americans have had a very odd relationship with alcohol indeed. Uh, so uh, on to the next one, um, regarding statistics. Uh, so at one time, half of British men, and if I get this wrong, let me know, half of British men were in a friendly society of one kind, according to historians. And at another time, uh, between, and I've read this in different ways, between 20 to 40 percent 
of American men were in at least one friendly society or um, you know, fraternal society. Uh, what do you think it is that happened whenever you had something that was you know, so prominent in society? Everybody knew somebody who was an odd fellow or a Mason or a you know, woodman. You know, there's so many different uh, friendly societies, uh, fraternal societies of the time. What do you think happened? Do you have theories about it or do you have any scholarly uh, conjectures that you could make about that? Joseph, are you talking about in the UK or the US? In the US. Um, now, as I understand it though too, in England, the uh, people, number of people who belong to friendly societies dropped significantly after 1900 as well. Uh, if I'm if I'm wrong, correct me. Um, but do you think that there was just something in particular that may have applied to both uh, countries in terms of the the drop in members? Well, <laughs> Penny, do you want to take a stab at it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just answer one part of that question because I think it's a it's not an easy question to answer, and I think as Simon and I answer it by looking at different parts of the question. Um, I was interested in the concept, as I said earlier, of friendly society and these sets of ethical obligations that, that the term implied. Um, and the, the, ar the architects of the welfare state in Britain were also interested in borrowing these ethical relationships and instrumentalizing them to produce a welfare state that could be self-policing. So they, they were really worried about the malingerer problem, the, the person who doesn't work hard but gets benefits. Um, and, and when you have small friendly societies as the basis of your welfare state, which is what um, William Beveridge wanted, then you have people who are policing their neighbors, as it were, um, or their created neighbors, and, and then the state is running an efficient system. It turned out though that the way the state that structured its, uh, its administration of benefits, it basically um, denuded any friendly society of any kind of sociable aspect. So it basically said, you join this friendly society in order to get your benefits, but then they wouldn't let them drink together. They wouldn't let them meet together in the, the way that the old friendly societies had. So there was a kind of um, hollowing out of the concept, the ethical, set of the ethical dimensions of friendly society by the state. Hmm. So I think that played a role. It's not the definitive answer. Right, right, right. Uh, Simon, your, your thoughts on this? Sure, so part of the answer is why did the state feel a need to step in? And in, the friendly societies in the UK were victims of their own success. I mean, they were incredibly popular. And as a consequence, they were, exposed actuarially to the sorts of risks that ultimately would have sunk them anyway, in all likelihood. Now, Penny will argue, and, and, and I'll go along with her along some of the way here, that friendly societies had a mechanism for collecting benefits when the pot had run dry called the levy, right? You could, you could essentially ask everyone who's a member to donate for the person who is in need. And that's certainly a mechanism to move beyond actuarial insolvency. That said, there were 
many problems with friendly society finances that were exacerbated, first of all, by the First World War and then by the effects of the Great Depression in the UK. The effects of the Great Depression in the US were just devastating for fraternal orders. In addition, in the US, there's a, a slow loss of ethnic identity. That was one of the hallmarks of the fraternal orders. There's a slow sense that families shouldn't be separated by sociability and therefore you get the kind of the domestic idyll of the 1950s where it's not quite so acceptable for the man to go his own way socially anymore. And I think crucially in the US and the UK, domestic leisure, the consumption of television, for example, certainly put paid to the idea that the highlight of the week is the convivial meeting in down at the local saloon or in the local pub. And I think, I mean, friendly societies were one of the key elements of Robert Putnam's notion, the, the bowling alone thesis, the idea that Americans are losing social capital because we are becoming dissipated and separated and losing the sense of social uh, collectivity that Americans used to have. And as, as flawed as that thesis is, and as much as you can say, well, we're forming new types of social capital. Uh, nonetheless, I think there is a, a grain of truth there that certainly the fraternal orders failed in part because of commercialized entertainment, because of the nuclear family ideal. And um, I suppose because that's what granddad did and it's not what I want to do. I mean, there's that sense of it's just old hat. Oh, I, I get where you're coming from. <laughs> we, uh, you know, one of the things that, that we try to do is focus on the fact that Oddfellows have always kind of been around to, you know, make a difference in, in one way or another in terms of their community. And that, uh, I think, has probably been our greatest uh, draw. And that is, you know, to have an opportunity to do something in the community uh, other than just, you know, uh, watch your neighbors go through things to actually help them. Uh, so, you know, I think that that's kind of all we've really got left. I mean, we still have to compete against Netflix and all that other stuff that, uh, you know, people are doing at home and, you know, Facebook, you know, uh, this is really, you know, kind of what we would consider to be like the original Facebook in a way where you make friends just by you know, joining and you have passwords and you have all of those things that you have with Facebook, but it was, you know, before the internet and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of competition between those things. And in California, we've had an increase in the number of members. And I think it's really in large part due to the fact that people want to do more than just be at home. Uh, as a family, they want to do things they want to make a difference in their community somehow. And because about 20 years ago, women were allowed to join Odd Fellows. Um, a lot of the times I've seen it, my wife and I joined at the same time. We just had two new members who joined, uh, husband and wife. And, you know, I think that, I think that that's, that's our way forward is really focusing on that aspect of it. What do, you, what do you both think from the perspective of having the benefit of history on your side in terms of what you know? What do you think is one possible way forward that Odd Fellows and other friendly societies could continue to grow? Is there anything that, that you see that was 
good and useful about such things that could be capitalized on today? I'll go first. Um, I, I, I actually am very hopeful for friendly societies as, as, long, as long as they're not burdened too much. I think with this earlier history that, that, that if they can open their sort of structural sense of who they are to think about what new problems can be solved that needs a community solution, right? And there are plenty, I think the global pandemic has shown a lot and I've been following the, the usage of the term friendly society on Google, just as a Google alert to see when people talk about it. And people are, are forming these friendly societies very ad hoc to, um, it's, it's almost like a GoFundMe, but at the local level. So it's like people saying, hey, we wanna get together to do, provide this service in our community. Um, so I think that's really hopeful. And, and I think, you know, if people knew more about the, the long history of this term, they might be emboldened to do it in lots of different contexts and in lots of different ways. I think one other point I would make is that the Odd Fellows in the UK are, continue to be a vibrant organization. And what, what they did was re sort of model themselves as a mediator between the welfare state and uh, beneficiaries of the welfare state to translate this just myriad of, of services that were offered that people may not know about. And so they, they, opened up helplines to their members to tell them what was available and to help them navigate that process. They've also really pushed toward um, the, the, the seniors in their community to provide a kind of um, social connection and, and, and um, group of people to do things with, like go to a movie together on a Saturday afternoon, that kind of thing. So uh, a little, um, more open in terms of, of how they would describe themselves, I think, than they used to. Yeah, we're more likely to get people together to pick up trash on a Saturday than go see a movie. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Simon, is there anything that you uh, could give in terms of your insight? Well, I agree with Penny that there is certainly a positive future Part of that future, I think, has been indicated by the Oddfellows sponsoring anti-drug, or I suppose drug awareness education through the D.A.R.E. programs, which are certainly rampant in the Midwest and certainly bear the Oddfellows signature. I also think that for many people, even though identity politics is so powerful, there's still a loss of identity and friendly societies can, in the past at least did, enable people to help define who they are in a positive way, not so much against others, but as, as in some way special to a group of people who think the way you do, who feel the way you do, perhaps who have similar attitudes towards society. And I think there's perhaps a role there for friendly societies as well. I do think that the fraternal orders that continue to exist, like the Elks, continue to offer some basic social services that are vital. And I think that in America, where the welfare state essentially, although it exists, it certainly is not as all pervasive as it is in the UK. I think there's a much greater role for American fraternal orders in not just translating what the welfare state can do for you, but perhaps also providing some of the services that in other contexts, the welfare state does provide. 
So I want to thank both of you, Simon and Penny, for joining me on this uh, Oddfellows Oddcast talking about the history of friendly societies. And if you're watching this and you haven't yet subscribed, please click the link and you'll be able to be notified when the next podcast hits the airwaves. So uh, thank you again, both. And uh, I hope that maybe sometime in the future, you'll be able to join me for another uh, podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you.